Hello and welcome to Dinesh Guard, the Cities ABC series. We are a fast-growing YouTube podcast thought leadership channel focused on profiling the global leading inspiring people, CEOs, authors, technologists, academic, academics, and the global experts changing and creating solutions for our world. We highlight the ideas, the products, the inventions, the software, the books, and the solutions to the multiple problems and challenges that we face in our cities, nations, with the advent of Society 5.0, that is the concept that has been actually created in Japan about the new society that can actually make a bridge between technology and people. And of course, everything related with digital transformation, fourth industrial revolution, and the emerging technology, especially the areas of AI, blockchain, fintech, IoT, digital currencies, and so forth. These podcast series are produced and distributed on the platform citiesabc.com and openbusinesscouncil.org. And they are syndicatedintelligentq.com, fashionabc.org, edgefink.com, and tradersdna. And this series has been growing quite, and I think we've been actually right now passing close to 90 people on a row. And we're very excited to have today with us Mama Wu, uh, that is a Chinese American right now stuck in Japan, but uh, as well um, a thought leader in the areas of blockchain, fintech, and AI, and crypto, and all the areas of decentralization. Uh, Mama Wu started working professionally as a graphic designer at the age of 15 in China before making a change to financial technology in 2014. And he moved to New York and to the US where he studied there. And as well, um, he found the artificial intelligence practice at the management consulting firm of Capital Markets Company. Mamao, who left the debt organization Capco in early 2016 to join the AI startup Neuresic, where he led technical sales implementation. And then he led the, um, the spinning product uh, for uh, building AI and optimized client profitability for trading firms and prime brokers, where he led product developing and technical sales. And in 2017, Mamao created, um, together with Dixon, um, uh, the startup Cora to build infrastructure for community-owned financial services. And at the moment, uh, which he left, I think, after 2018, and uh, at the moment, is working as a development lead in the company Zero Cap and is a partner in the company and uh, related uh, um, blockchain and digital currencies, agent capital. Um, so welcome to our series. I'm looking forward to talk with you, Mama. We didn't spoke for a long time, but it's great to catch up. It's great to see you, Dennis. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Mama, so you have a particularly interesting background because from China and uh, as well uh, being grown on and starting as a designer as 15 and as well very early starting with the digital uh, roles and working with companies to then go to the United States and, and you have a very American accent. So you kept the two worlds very related. So you have both the two worlds. Can you tell us about that background your education as well, your first experiences with 15, which is quite an early stage where most teenagers are just boring in school. So a bit of your background and uh, uh, until you, you went to the United States and as well did your mm -hmm. studies and start your first working. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I was born in the US and then I lived there until I was about 10 in uh, New Jersey. And then uh, my parents who uh, were both academics, they went back to China in 2003, and uh, you know, I, I went with them. 
so they went back to be professors in China. And so, uh, so from the ages of 10 to 17, uh, I went to the public school in China and not in like a big city in like a small city of 10 million people that went to school there. And so when I was 15, um, I was just bored out of my mind because I don't know if you know this about, but, uh, public school in China is brutal. You know, when I was in high school, we were going to school 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., six days a week. And then on Sunday, we had a half day. So with Sunday, <laughs> Sunday, you go to school at 12. You had to sleep half a day. So six and a half days a week where we're studying. And then you go home, you do homework. So, and that's like for all of China. You know, every high school is like that. We were not exceptional in that sense. So, yeah, I was, I was just bored out of my mind. And I was like, if this keeps happening, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die of boredom. I'm going to go crazy of boredom. So when I was 15, um, our school had a student newspaper which was kind of moribund. It was very, uh, and no one had time to work on these things, but it was there. And so I kind of inserted myself in there and I started working with those people and eventually became editor of the newspaper. And um, I started doing design for a newspaper. And so I didn't know anything. I just, um, I got a version of uh, InDesign off the internet and Photoshop off the internet. And I just started designing a newspaper. And so that was really interesting. You know, no one was there to tell me what my design looked garbage or, you know, how to make it look better. So we just did whatever it felt like doing kind of. And, um, and then, so we did that. Uh, so by the time I went to undergrad, uh, you know, in, in New York when I was 18, um, I'd been doing design for about three years already because I was working on the newspaper, um, mostly self-taught. And I uh, started doing a bunch of other stuff, started like making like CD covers for my friends, started making like posters, like business cards, just because I was bored. Not for any particular reason, just because I was bored. And then, so, you know, I went to NYU and I studied design uh, as a, I, got, I actually have a bachelor's degree in design that I've almost never used, but I technically have that degree. And, um, and so when I was, uh, while I was in school, I was working professionally as a designer. And that's when I realized that graphic design is a terrible, terrible industry to be in. So, you know, you have like very long hours, um, you, you make very little pay and it's very low ceiling. So like, even if you own your own design firm, you're not making that much money. And, um, and no one, no one really cares about your work, right? Everyone, everyone thinks they're a designer, unfortunately. And some people are good at design and some people really shouldn't be anywhere near, you know, Photoshop, but it doesn't matter. You have to, whatever the client says you have to make. And so that just, uh, I mean, it was, it, I just, it, especially living in New York, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this for a career. You know, this is fun if it's just for fun, but I don't know if I want to do it for a career. So when I graduated, I try, I made the shift into FinTech, which was quite a shift. I got to say, I had, I had no experience whatsoever in FinTech, but um, I was very lucky because the Capital Markets Company, which is a boutique consulting firm in New York, based out of Belgium, actually, they um, had just started a digital practice. And so I was hired there as a graphic designer and uh, I worked there as a designer for two weeks and then I got shipped, shipped off to, to Morgan Stanley. So that's how I got my, that was my Trojan horse. Graphic design was my Trojan horse into the FinTech industry. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's how I got started. Just to understand that, I want to touch more. Can you tell us a bit about the cultural challenges and shock that you got between the Chinese culture and the US culture? Because I think it's particularly interesting because you, let's say your grown up age and your education was when China became the powerhouse that right now actually between the last two, three years, mostly passed the United States. 
So it's a, a paradigm shift in the sense that you went from the culture that was the number one in the world to the culture that was at the time was quite underdeveloped to become the biggest global powerhouse. And actually at the moment, the shift actually according to most studies and actually words of Eric Schmidt is around one decade ahead of the rest of the world, including the United States. So I would like to talk more about that, sh that shock that I'm sure you got both in terms of hard working capacity. I didn't know actually that the children would work from 7 a.m. To, to 10 p.m. That's quite impressive and shows as well why China achieved so much. But as well, of yeah, course, yeah, I'm yeah. sure there's other challenges that come out of that. So I, I would like to hear because you, you have the American background, the bringing, then going to the U.S. To, to China to study, and then coming back to the U.S. to study or grow up. So it's kind of a, a big shock. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh boy, it was a big shock. So, I mean, I was 10 growing up in a uh, suburban New Jersey. And then, because you got to understand, I didn't go back to like Beijing or Shanghai or, or like Shenzhen. We went to some tiny, tiny city by Chinese standards in an underdeveloped province. Even today, it's still fairly under, underdeveloped by Chinese standards. And so, um, but you know, you kind of see, because like China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001. Um, and so that's when development really started to pick up. And my parents, they saw that that was happening, which factored into their decisions to, to go back to China um, in 2003. And, uh, and yeah, you know, let me put it this way. When I went back in 2003, in the very, very city center, there was one McDonald's and there was one KFC. And that was the center of the city, the fact that you had these two restaurants. And then I remember in 2005, or maybe 2006, we got our first Walmart. It was a big deal. So I got a bunch of friends. They went and just hung out at Walmart. It was like, oh. The city's, it's being internationalized now. We have a Walmart now. I remember for Christmas, for like these, or like for New Year's, uh, we would go to the best restaurant in the city, which was Pizza Hut. And so Pizza Hut in China, they had, they had escargot, they had little snails. And uh, it was like gourmet food. You know, they did a really good rebrand in China. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't even see Pizza Hut in the U.S. anymore. People don't eat it. But in China, it's like a gourmet brand. And so it was a, it was a big culture shock. And obviously the, the work, Which, by the way, I think, honestly, like, I think my high school years in China were a complete waste of time. You know, I don't think we learned any. I think everything I learned that was useful was probably the design stuff and maybe a little bit of math, to be fair. But everything else was a huge waste of time. So I don't support that kind of education at all. Um, and, you know, even when, um, well, I guess it does, like, instill a different kind of work ethic. Like, even now in China, there's, like, the, the idea of 996 which is it's very common to work 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week. That's just how everyone kind of works. I guess it does come from, you know, like, uh, like compared to high school, that's easy, you know. And so, and then coming back to the United States, it was also a big culture shock because at that point, I'd been in China for seven years. And, uh, yeah, just like, because the U.S. was changing rapidly between, like, 2003 to 20, 2010 as well, you know, like the, the GFs, the great financial crisis happened. And then the iPhone happened and, you know, all these things were happening. So I came back. I was like, oh, what's this? What's, what's Facebook? You know, well, what's an iPhone? What's so cool about the iPhone? And I kind of like had to pick up on everything that happened in, in between. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was just uh, like, things were just changing really quickly. I will say, though, that um, like the level of change, it, it, both in terms of good or bad, like, you know, for it was a big deal for us when we got our first Walmart. In, in the city I was in, and now there's like three, you know, there's like all kinds of like major, so there's like Kia there, there's like all kinds of like major international brands there. But also when we went back, like one bucket of KFC 
was uh, was 49 RMB. And now it's like 160. So it also says, says a lot about inflation, you know, over those like, over those 17 years. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, what can I say? A lot, a lot changed and you always had to deal with it. Now that's, that's uh, an impressive, I think it's good to demystify because I think people, I think unless you have really con- contact with the culture, you create these stereotypes and I know that Amer- we have the stereotypes about America, we have the stereotypes about Chinese and then probably about Europe, but it's kind of tricky and I think it's becoming a big thing as we have in a very close global um, world and very uh, in a lot of ways, but then we have all these kind of cultural shocks that we have and I think we only understand that. I think you can only do business if, if you understand this and this is key for everything we're doing. So I want to go right now to from your career. So you start as a designer, as you mentioned, and then you end up actually working with trading houses and actually big trading houses and you became very involved in all of the, the, these, these different areas. So can you tell us a bit about that shift from design to um, advanced areas of uh, special related with the fintech and the integration with the trading world? And then when you found out crypto or Bitcoin and all these different areas that you've been actually quite involved since then. I got this degree in, uh, when I graduated college in 2014. I had this degree in graphic design. I did not want to do graphic design you know, at all. I've been working it the whole time and I was like, this is a terrible, terrible career. I don't want to be in this industry anymore. And so I was very, very lucky. I was very, very lucky that this firm happened to be hiring graphic designers, but their main business was FinTech. And so, uh, so I, A, I was, I was lucky that Capco was being progressive as a consulting firm and was really getting into, you know, digital technologies. And B, I was lucky. Uh, so our COO in New York at the time, we had about 700 people in New York. Our COO is a chap named Patrick Gormley who leads Cognitive and RPA at uh, IBM US now, I think. And so, uh, so uh, you know, in my last year of college, I realized I didn't want to do design. So um, I was looking around and like, okay, well, what do I, what do I want to do besides design? And um, so I did some research into AI. And I was like, this is, this is crazy. This AI stuff is crazy. This was like uh, early 2014. And I saw this one thing called Bina48. Have you ever heard of Bina48, Dennis? Um, just my name, not much. <laughs> you might want to look it up. It's just B-I-N-A-48. It's really cool. It's this, uh, this billionaire who tried to upload his, her wife's consciousness into a robot. And that robot's name is Bina48. And so it was this nonprofit. And so I just reached out to the nonprofit and I was like, hey guys, I'll work for you for free. You know, I just want to learn about AI. And so I was working with, um, it's called the, the TerraSend Foundation. I was working for them for a few months, just doing like, uh, just doing like uh, social media stuff for them. Um, for free, but it was really just so I could learn more about AI, and I really did learn a lot. And so when I started working at Capco, I had not so much an understanding of AI, but an understanding, I'd read a lot of news about AI, because I've been doing social media for, for life now. And so I was talking with Patrick Gormley, our COO, like a few, uh, like in late 2014, a few months after I joined the firm. I was like, so Patrick, AI is obviously going to be a big deal. I was like, yes, it is. And you know, I was like, well, we should start doing AI stuff as a consulting firm. He was like, yes, we should. I was like, well, you should hire me. You should let me uh, lead the project. And I was like, yes, you should lead the project. I was like, really? I, I was, I was kind of joking. <laughs> and so I was leading, um, 
I was the AI practice lead for Capco, and I knew very little about AI. I knew nothing about finance, and I knew nothing about consulting, but I was supposed to build this practice area. And so, um, you know, we went through a lot of trial and error. What we did is our thesis, which I still think is actually a pretty good thesis, was that as a mid-sized firm um, of 700 people, we weren't going to outcompete, you know, like the big firms in terms of implementation or in like homegrown technologies like IBM Watson. And we weren't going to like outcompete actual AI companies in terms of data science. So my thesis was we should partner with these AI startups, of which there were many at the time, and we should be their consulting arm and work with them to develop these offerings to take to the banks. And so I ended up reaching out to like over 100 AI startups, me and like about a team of five or six people inside Capco. And we got, we just understood what they did. And about 10 or 20 of them, we, we felt that they were applications for our clients. And like three or four of them, we ended up doing like very concrete kind of uh, service offerings and where it was like a hybrid kind of thing. It was one very successful one for us, which we called lean automation. And so the idea is that automation is going to be a big deal, which by the way, it totally was and totally is. Um, and even back then between like uh, between Dodd-Frank and already low interest rates, banks had very low ROE, return on equity. And so everything was about cost savings. And so obviously automation was very popular. And so our thesis was that um, you can't just go in and blindly automate stuff because A, you won't get your cost savings and B, you'll increase risk. So you should combine these automation technologies with you know, traditional management consulting stuff like Lean or like Six Sigma or whatever. And so we called it Lean Automation. And we also said, you know, we're not IBM, so we're not just going to push Watson on you because Watson's terrible, which it was at the time. And so it was a very popular offering. And um, so we did that. We did a bunch of other like similar offerings in the AI space. And we kind of brought them to these banks. And um, so, you know, it was overall a very good learning experience for me. You know, I learned a lot about AI. I learned a lot about consulting, a lot about the like fintech stack of these banks and how terrible it was really. And also a lot about like how banks operate. Because um, I was also working as a, as a management consultant at the time. So I did a lot of like, you know, one of my projects at the time was... Um, Morgan Stanley was building a robo-advisor and we were hired to scope out the operational requirements of running this robo-advisor. So me and a few, uh, a few Morgan staff, we kind of like did a front-to-back um, analysis of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management's operational, of their operations. And so that was a great opportunity. And so I went through that and I was like, holy crap, 80% of this could be automated with technologies in 2015. And so, you know, these days, probably like 90% can be automated. And then, um, and I told my client that 50% can be automated because I didn't want to scare them. But, um, but yeah, you know, that, there was a great opportunity in understanding how these banks work. And so that was kind of how I made the transition into fintech. And so, you know, long story short, I was very, very fortunate that I was kind of in the right firm at the right time. And, um, and it was also just uh, a lot of uh, learning that's also when I, learned, uh, when I learned to code. So, you know, I was having all these conversations with these AI startups and they were like, you know, I remember asking one startup, so could you tell me what machine learning is? Like, just, just, just tell me what machine learning is and sent me the Wikipedia page for machine learning. And so, um, so I did a, a data science course at General Assembly for about three months. And, um, you know, I learned Python for data science. 
And so that's kind of when I first, and that ends up being very helpful for when I joined Iron Capital years later, because now we're using those kind of technologies on a, on a regular basis for, for algo trading. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was, you know, the most important factor was just lots and lots of luck. And then uh, lots and lots of learning and studying to kind of get up to speed. Um, but yeah, it was, it ended up being, you know, kind of setting the tone for the rest of my career up to now, I suppose. You came to an in the industry that, that is definitely the most advanced in terms of digital, that is the financial industry. Um, and is more advanced to the rest of society. Because if you look at, uh, I would say probably the, the industries that are more digital savvy are advertisement, of course, and then the second is finance. And advertisement and finance are really massive global industries that actually disrupt our world, especially with Facebook and Google and made the, a lot of cases from geopolitics or other things. And of course, in, in finance at the moment, is everything automated. So you went through that. So I would like to understand. So from that experience and as well, the work you've been doing, what would be like the things that, uh, that struck you as, a, as an expert, both building technology, but as well building business around technologies and some, some of the case studies or some highlights that you want to highlight from, or they want to expose from your experience working in these uh, multiple different experiences. Well, you know, even at the time, it was, it was tremendously obvious that automation would change everything. So, you know, you think of bank employees as being highly educated professionals who are doing very difficult quantitative stuff. And it's true that they're highly educated and it's true that they're very professional. You know, like everyone I worked with at Morgan Stanley was very professional. But it's also true that, like, in my opinion, only about 10% of the bank, maybe less, really need to do you know, knowledge intensive work. About 30% are operations. So they're just like doing the daily stuff to keep the, keep the lights on. And about 30% are tech, but even the tech side was like, you know, everyone's just kind of building the same things. And so you need only need like a very small amount of like a relatively small amount of front office people who are doing the actual financial modeling or quantitative research or, or like really complicated stuff like that. And so, you know, it was just obvious that like even these highly paid bank employees, we can audit, we can automate away 80% of their jobs, you know, like very easily. And so, and even in these days with, with COVID and cost cutting, it's just become, you know, it, I don't think anyone's, I don't think you can prepare for this kind of things. You know, like the obvious thing is like, oh, maybe you should just become an AI expert, but that's much easier said than done. And so that was one. The second is that you know, in terms of AI, people, uh, it's such a big topic, but I think it's very important not to see it as a monolithic technology that's just going to be, that's just going to happen. So we, you know, really, we met a lot of like startups at the time. And we, we also talked with a lot of larger AI companies that have been around for a long time because people have been using similar technologies for, for a while. It just became like a trend about 10 years ago. And uh, one really important key, like, uh, one really important uh, is, thing is that AI technologies were really useful when they could be applied to a specific problem. So we met a bunch of like AI startups. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I have a PhD in AI and I built this platform for doing AI. And they always had the same problem, which is that, well, okay, you have a platform, but well, what do I do with it? And we found that the startups that came in with a very focused vision of like, I'm going to use AI for you know, fraud, predicting fraud, or for optimizing energy grids, or for like this specific problem. 
we found that it's really a very complementary technology if you know, like data science is you know automation is very disruptive in terms of these you know wipe away these jobs but data science really is like um, you need to apply with a scapel more than you know you can just sprinkle it, it on everything that's what ibm was doing wrong at the time you know i knew a bunch of the, what the watson guys and what they were doing is they were just they were set they scoped out a traditional consulting project and they went back and they sprinkled watson on everything and that was uh, completely the wrong approach. You can't just shove AI into things and expect it to work. You need to identify use cases that are complementary for AI and then just build around that specific use case. And so I think that's probably the most important thing in terms of how to apply it, you know, and it's probably still true today. And, um, and the last important thing, this is the thing that kept jumping out of me as I was working at, at Capco was that I just felt like AI would just, it would cut the fat out of society. And so, you know, obviously you have all these people whose jobs are going to go away, but you also have like, you know, like when you make a loan, for example, or like when you recommend an ad, um, like right, you know, first they were done by people like, you know, Madison, Madison Avenue in the fifties, you had people trying to figure out when to run ads. And then you had like rules. Um, and now it's using data science. It's all using machine learning. And so it's just like, slowly and slowly optimizing and just slowly, slowly squeezing any human element out of the whole thing. I mean, you still need humans to interpret the data, but it's no longer like uh, humans, not so much in a driving wheel as they are a teacher to these machine learning algorithms, or they're like a teacher to these automation, you know, workflows. And so, yeah, I mean, that was honestly, that was just kind of a scary vision to think of. You're going to have this like, incredibly stratified society of people that are like, like here's the crazy thing with all this automation for like highly trained in demand professionals, they're all working more than ever before. Like everyone's on, if you're like uh, an in demand professional in this day and age, you're like on 24 seven, like your phone, you're on Slack over the weekends, you're getting emails, you know, also because everything's so global and like you quit your job, you can like go somewhere else immediately. And then, if you're not in that group of people, then you can't find a job wherever you go. Like at this point in time, if your skill set get, becomes obsolete, then I think it's like the barrier to entry to you know like the, the more desirable jobs is getting higher and higher. And so it's it's this this paradigm where people who are have undesirable skill sets can't get a job anywhere, and you know almost they almost provide no value in this like AI automated society. And people that do have jobs are just like being worked to death because there's like so few of them because the barrier to entry gets, keeps, keeps, keeps getting higher and higher. And so, um, I mean, I don't know what we could do about it. It just seems kind of inevitable, but um, it was a very scary kind of vision that we were staring down. So, uh, I mean, it's still going on. It was only five years ago that we were doing all these things. So I guess we're really starting to see the effects just kind of starting up now. So can you tell us about, uh, so you created the Quora, you right now uh, as well, been working with Zero Cap and as well with Aiton, a Agen Capital. Can you tell us a bit about these companies and how do you discover probably crypto and cryptocurrencies and decentralization, which is an area very dear to you? I've been working in AI for like a few years, not that long actually. And, um, you know, when I met Dixon, I, I, I've been starting to make the conscious choice to leave AI actually. And so one thing I realized is that 
it's really like AI as a field, the really exciting stuff is really driven by a very small group of highly educated researchers. It's really a research-driven field more than anything else. And so, I mean, probably most of the money, besides the money made by Google and Facebook, is being made by like these automation companies or whatever. But like the really interesting stuff is driven by a very small group of researchers. And so I was realizing that if I wanted to be at the, at the core of this field, then I need to go get a PhD. And, you know, having studied graphic design in college, I didn't really have the foundation. And I, I had to make this choice of like, do I want to go get a PhD? Do I want to kind of be on the periphery of this field that is so interesting? But, you know, do I really not like, and, I, and at this point, I think, and I still do think that if you're not at the core of an industry, then it's just not somewhere you want to be because you could be easily removed, you know, and you're going to be um, just, uh, you're being lagging behind in terms of, um, in terms of developments. And so when I met Dixon, I had already been thinking about these things, that the fact that I had like no competitive advantage in, in AI as much as I liked working in it. And then this guy Dixon shows up. He's like, hey, bro, look at this, 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 this like crypto stuff. Look at how much money we can make. And so, um, so with Dixon, it was really about like trying to realize that opportunity of, uh, of financial services in Africa is kind of what we were really working on. I mean, not really Africa, more like the developing world, but obviously with his background, we were really focusing on Africa. And so Quora was like, uh, it started as a blockchain payment startup. And we went through this whole process of trying to figure out like how blockchain could be used to optimize payments. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm sad to say that we spent like a year, almost a year working on this problem, me and Dixon. And we realized that it was at least for US to Nigeria there was almost nothing that blockchain could do to optimize this problem. So we actually built a product where you could send payments and people in rural Nigeria with no internet, with their mobile phone, they could, uh, they could get the payments through text message. So we actually built this thing um, at very, very, on a very, very low budget. And then I realized that we built it and it wasn't really, the blockchain stuff was not helping at all. It was the uh, relationships with the licensed payment providers that was, was the, the secret sauce. And so, you know, I think payments is really, it's very like, it's very regulatory driven. It's not really tech driven. And at that point, you know, I was like, we shouldn't do payments anymore. Uh, I thought we should do something along the lines of securitization. And Dixon really wanted to do payments. So eventually just, that's when I left the firm because I was like, oh, I don't think this is the right direction to go in. Um, but the really interesting thing about crypto as I moved into it was that where I had where I personally had no competitive advantage in the field of AI because I, I didn't have a PhD. I had a large competitive advantage in crypto because, um, you know, I had like a somewhat technical background and because I'd worked in traditional financial firms before. And so, um, and coming back, you know, after I left core, I went back to China and lived, lived in Beijing for a year and a half. Um, having worked on wall street for, for four, four or five years, I had like a big competitive, competitive advantage in China. And so, and that's, um, that's been kind of one of the things I've been really thinking about in terms of working in crypto as opposed to working in, in AI and having like gone through a bull market with Quora, then a bear market. Now we might be coming back to a bull market, like seeing the cycle and really kind of understanding the implications of crypto. I really think it could be just as disruptive as what AI is going to do to society, but in a very, very different way. 
I think it's very, it's actually going to be very hard to kind of compare these two technologies against each other. Just, but for sure, they're going to be very, very disruptive. And so where AI is just kind of like, it's taking the existing structure, which is, you know, big firms, they want to optimize their competitive advantage. And they use, you know, data science and machine learning and automation to do it. Um, where AI is kind of reinforcing the current status quo. Uh, crypto is completely ripping apart current status quo. Because as we see, you know, we live in the USD-centric financial system. And, um, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of issues with the USD-centric financial system. And right now, with just, there's just so much debt that we've been levering up since, uh, since the dot-com bubble um, accelerated after the great financial crisis and obviously accelerated during COVID. So there's just so much debt. And that's kind of like, that's uh, like the last act or that's like, that seems to be the only idea that most governments have when it comes to, um, to fiscal policy is just take out a lot of debt, print a lot of money, and use that to stimulate economies. And historically, that has always led to disaster and to massive depreciation of the currency and to competitors of these currencies coming up. And so, you know, like a really important thing to understand about the U.S. dollar is that the current U.S. dollar system has been around for less than 50 years. So um, in the Bretton Woods Agreement post-World War II, the U.S. dollar was pegged to gold and everything else was pegged to the U.S. dollar uh, and therefore gold. And in 1971, which was 49 years ago, Richard Nixon unilaterally canceled the system. Um, and so there was no more convertibility into gold. And so think about that. So 50 years ago, um, money, the money you hold in your wallet had direct convertibility to a finite scarce asset, which was gold. And then for 50 years, we've been living in a, a totally fiat world. And here comes Bitcoin, which is yet another finite scarce resource, which has a bunch of desirable properties which make it um, almost like a almost like a modern version of gold and like think about how disruptive that could be to the status quo especially given the stress that we currently see in the usd centric financial system so i think it's going to be hugely hugely impactful i think when we talk about like crypto financial systems i don't think we're seeing the growth of a crypto financial system i think we're just seeing the growth of a new financial system period um, it's it's really structured very differently, you know. Where in the, in the in the current paradigm, everything is structured around the central banks. So you have like your your retail brokers, and they go up to like the community banks, they go up to like large banks, and large banks give accounts at the central banks, and the central banks settle with each other, and that's how like global finance works today. In in the in the crypto world, Bitcoin is the central bank, or maybe Tether. You know, bit, like those are the two reserve currencies. And then like everyone just kind of lives in this free market where you exchange Bitcoin for like other assets and then provide services. And then your services aren't regulated by anyone, not really. You're just kind of backed by the credit of that institution. And so it's a very different kind of world. And, uh, but you really see it growing up and you see it accelerating post-COVID. And so I think that's very exciting. It's, it's like, um, it's, it's just as disruptive, I think, as AI, but in a, in a very, very different way. And um, yeah, I'm very excited to see what's going to happen I mean, certainly next year, but, um, you know, next 10, 20 years, I think things that we think are impossible today, um, I think, you know, I think we would be very surprised in 20 years from now. There's a huge potential uh, for this disruption, and I think it's, it's going there, but I think we still have a, 
I think multiple velocities world that has in one hand the crypto ecosystem that is around four hundred billion dollars in which is in the context of the world economy is nothing, but its impact in the financial industry and as well on all the trading industry is much bigger than that. And I think there's already a lot of other products that are being created around that. So as a, as a wrap up, uh, and I think we'll have to have a second talk probably more on technology in these areas because we pass around one hour. What would be, let's say, from the work you've been doing and the experience you build building these companies and as well, I think you have a unique... Uh, something unique because you are as well a software developer, you are as well a business person, and you have as well the trading and the thought leadership art associated with that, which not a lot of people have. Um, so what would be like at this stage we are right now and from your experience working both with uh, trading and investment brokers, decentralized platforms, um, OTCs, all these different things. What would be in this stage we are, have you seen these like tribes and each tribe will do certain their own stuff or are you seeing one trend the defy defy i have my doubts but i just would like to hear a bit of your background because you are in the epicenter of this and, and especially uh being uh american chinese and right now even with your global background you have a lot of experience on this area so i'd like to hear your input on that i think one great thing about crypto it's it's a very free market kind of system because there's so little regulation and because it's so difficult to control like these technologies at the root level and so, you know, you know, like, like I talked about for AI, I think it's really important to be at the core of whatever industry you're going to be. And to me, Bitcoin is really the core of crypto. You know, it's by far the largest crypto. It's the most highly traded. Um, it was the first. It has the lowest credit risk. It's the most liquid. Um, it's the most expensive. And so most of what we're going to be doing um, at Eigen Capital and with Zero Cap this year and probably next year is going to be Bitcoin centric, just mostly around just trading Bitcoin, which is kind of like the most, uh, you know, I think it's kind of the most core activity you can have, you know, just trade in and out of the reserve currency, which is Bitcoin. Um, I think one major trend for crypto over the next two, three years is going to be uh, just continued dominance of Asia. And so, you know, we saw this really clearly in 2017 because we tried to do an ICO with Quora they try to do a legal ICO with Core, and I'm very, I'm very proud to say that today we have never received a letter from the SEC, which is, you know, thank God. And so, but you know, it was just so expensive and so difficult to do like a legal ICO. And you know, even today, like U.S. regulators have been so hostile to to to, to crypto, and you know, which, which makes perfect sense because they have the most to lose if Bitcoin takes over as a reserve currency. But what what has happened is that the cost of sales and the cost of compliance, the cost of doing business in the United States and to some degree in the UK and in Europe is so high, it's made these markets uncompetitive on the world stage in terms of crypto. And you really need like these big companies like Coinbase, who, by the way, has been unprofitable for most of their, their lifetime. You know, it's like everyone else is just washed out because the cost to compete is so high. And so, whereas in Asia, you have the opposite problem. There's so little regulation that there's scams all over the place, but it tends to make a very free market in a very dynamic kind of uh, market. And obviously in, in Asia, you have a, a faster pace of growth. You have younger demographics, you have more people. Um, so, so it's a larger market and you have weaker currencies. So you have, you, people have more reason to use, you know, to use crypto. You tend to have more capital controls and other reason to use unrestricted currency. 
And so I think Asia will continue to be the epicenter of crypto for a long time, um, especially when and if the U.S. dollar declines. I, I think it's going to look very different to the current system, but I think there are definitely parallels. And so, you know, we talk about exchanges all the time about, I think exchanges could become what we consider banks in today's system. Because think about it, like exchange like the, the New York Stock Exchange, they don't hold your money. They don't let you trade directly on it, you know, but in exchange like, like Binance or Coinbase, they hold your money, they, they deliver spot, and people have to connect to the exchange. And often exchanges are the gateways into fiat currencies for their region. And so they're, they're, almost like, they're almost like this clearinghouse for that region and this gateway for people to get in and out of crypto. So I think we could see this, like, uh, this network where you have, in each region, you have these regional exchanges which are gateways, and then they fold up into these global exchanges, which are like Binance, Huobi, kind of Coinbase, like a few big global exchanges. And, and, and then those fold up into all the different service providers. So DeFi is kind of one of them, or like lending, like centralized lending, like BlockFi or Celsius, you know, custodians. One thing that we've been working with with ZeroCap is been working very closely with these institutional providers. So, um, you know, Fireblocks as an institutional custody provider, Xmargin as an OTC derivatives clearinghouse, you know, Copper as a way to cross margin across exchanges. Um, we've been working like with a lot of these companies that are only really relevant once you you like deal with these problems of like institutional settlement and like dealing with like counterparty risk. And it's it's really you know I I love using Xmargin as an example because I think it's a great a great example of how sophisticated the space has gotten, where you have an OTC clearinghouse for, for crypto derivatives, right? Like, I think once you get to like weird derivatives, that's when you know the industry has really started kind of go off the rails in terms of sophistication. And so I think you're going to really going to see that. And, uh, and one last thing I actually want to bring up um, is one trend that I don't know if it's going to be a trend, but I hope it's going to be a trend is this idea of, of uh, corporate treasury using Bitcoin as a store of value. So you saw that with MicroStrategy when they bought 450 million Bitcoin and Square bought 50 million. And you know, like, uh, it's funny cause like um, these corporations, they have a fiduciary duty to their stakeholders to you know, maximize shareholder value. And you can make the case that in a highly inflationary environment like the one we're currently in, um, taking your excess cash and moving it into safe assets is a good idea. And I mean, no one's going to argue with that. But the issue is that like interest rates are so low and the stock market is so volatile, then what are you going to do with, with all your money? And so I think it, you can make a, I mean, obviously people have made that there's a, there's a strong case to move into Bitcoin. And so, I mean, just think about like, that's so much money that's going to flow into Bitcoin, right? So it might be a good time to buy Bitcoin. And so I don't know if that's going to be a trend, but I hope it's going to be a trend. You know, I think it's a re reasonable thing to do. So, um, so yeah, I think there's going to be a lot happening, you know, in crypto over the next, next few years. Very big things happening. And I think this is another podcast on its own. And definitely I want to uh, follow up on that. So I think uh, from a question of time today, we, we, we stay with this one hour. So uh, I want to appreciate your time and the fantastic insights. Um, and I think definitely, I think probably we'll have a, I want to have a chat talking more about these topics. 
So, Mama, we're going to put the links about your companies and about what you're doing. Um, as well, I did mention, but you are as well doing a podcast, although uh, we've been pausing it for now, but to put as well the link to it and to your YouTube uh, uh, link. And I want to thank you for this and for these great insights. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nish. This was, this was a lot of fun. Let's do it again. Thank you. Thank you.